The following podcast contains spoilers. We strongly recommend you watch the episode of The Americans we're discussing before listening to the podcast. New episodes air Wednesdays at 10 p.m. on FX. I don't know if the show would really suffer if these people just spoke gibberish and the, sub- <laughs> and the, sub- and the subtitles said that they said what they said. But um, there's something beautiful about authenticity. Hello and welcome to Slate's TV Club Insider Podcast for Season 4 of The Americans, where today we'll be discussing Episode 6, The Rat. I'm June Thomas, a writer and editor at Slate, and I'm the host of this podcast, which takes you behind the scenes of the show. I've returned once again to gay-friendly Gowanus, Brooklyn, where the show is made, and today our special guest is the woman who turns the writer's English words into the Russian character's dialogue, Masha Gessen. And yes, that's the Masha Gessen, the journalist and writer. Hello, Masha, or should I say, Privyet? Privyet, good to be here. Thank you. Also here is Joe Weisberg, the creator of the show. Hello, Joe. Hi, June. And his co-showrunner and co-executive producer, Joel Fields. Hello, Joel. Hey there. So, Masha, you're this amazing and very successful reporter and writer who even wrote a book that made me read about math, uh, which is quite an achievement. So how did you come to be doing this job? Well, you must know, there's this whole sort of Slavophile uh, community that that is obsessed with the show that, you know, has watching parties and... Wow. Um, well, we might and, know, but we love to hear about it. And long exchanges <laughs> about it. But one of the gripes uh, that that people in this community had with the show was was the translation, uh, which you know, as as again, you guys have pointed out, uh, there will always be someone who will have gripes with the translation. But everybody was griping, and then I heard that the show was looking for a translator, so I started asking around, and then I thought, oh, I. Um, <laughs> That's something I'd really love to do. It'd be so much fun, and it has been so much fun. So how does your job work? I mean, you literally get scripts that are written in English, and you tell, then you suddenly write the words that the Russian characters will speak. I mean, is is, is that what it amounts to? Yeah, that's what it amounts to. I mean, uh, I look for the scenes where it says that the characters speak are speaking Russian, yeah. <laughs> uh, and I translate those scenes. Uh, it's it, sometimes it gets really fun because um, I mean, translation is always interesting. It's always yeah. challenging, and I've you know I've translated books in the past, uh, but this is like translation distilled because all you're translating is, is dialogue, and it's it's down to a few words. But um, but sometimes you know I catch the writers on an assumption that they're making about something that the characters would say or something that even more interestingly would be in their lives. Uh-huh. Can you give us uh, an example of that sort of thing? Uh, I can actually think of a visual that, uh, or uh, no, uh, another thing that I'm, um, that I'm sometimes asked to do is translate props. Oh, right. Translate props. Yeah. So, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a form that somebody has filled out or testimony or, you know, anything that has text, right? It should have yeah. Russian text that should make sense. So, for example, there was a... Uh, a death certificate that was sent to me to translate. And I, um, you know, the, the, whoever sent me the prop uh, naturally assumed that a death certificate would be issued by a coroner. Uh-huh. But there was no such thing as a coroner in the Soviet Union. In fact, you had the Office of Registration of Civic States, 
Mm. Uh, and and that's who would issue the death certificate. And sort of the whole form uh, of, of, of registering death and the whole cultural approach to death right. is completely different in the communist society than it is here in the States. Yeah. In fact, we, we went through a whole mind-bending experience learning about the Russian, the Soviet legal process for Nina because here we're used to an adversarial system and there it's completely different, but... From their point of view, it's their system of justice. It just involves more of a singular approach than a adversarial approach. Yeah, I, you know, justice may be stretching it a little bit. <laughs> I said from their it's point a, of it's view, it's a it's a system of maintaining order, and that's and that's very much how the justice system was, was viewed. You know, as sort of part of the system of, uh, of of making people act the way they should be acting in that society. Well, it's a. I'm hesitant to take on Masha in this regard because, as you said, she's quite both esteemed and more knowledgeable than me on most of these matters. But the justice system, the only part I know about it really is in terms of espionage. And it actually was interesting in that particular corner, which I've studied, because there was actually, there were actually elements of justice involved there. In that particular corner, mm-hmm. when they would be suspicious of someone for espionage and have evidence against them, the degree to which they would, through their justice system, try to establish that somebody was really guilty was incredible. It was You probably had as good a chance of getting a fair shake in the Soviet system as you did in the American system. They required such an intense accumulation of evidence before they would actually convict someone of espionage. And the only, and, and this wasn't about order. If they wanted to maintain order, they could just mm-hmm. arrest the person. Mm-hmm. They, the only plausible explanation for it was that they were not going to take an innocent person and throw them in jail for the rest of their life or, or execute them. And I'm not saying this was in the rest of society. There was something something special about espionage for them that they weren't going to send someone away or kill them unless they really, really knew. Uh, you know, you should see I Masha's wonder, face right know, now. Exactly. She's having a hard trouble buying it. No, I think, uh, I mean, I think that's a really good point. Um, and, and in fact, it marked you know, a huge change in the late Soviet Union from the 1930s of through co- the 1950s when everybody was arrested for, for espionage. But I think that um, the rationale behind it might be not so much you know, the fear of putting an innocent person in jail as the incredible importance of identifying spies for the security system, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Because then if, if you identify the spy, then you can shake them down. And that's, that's, that's a valuable source of information. Well, it also might you don't be want to be shaking down your, somebody who's not a spy. It also might be that no one in your organization is going to work effectively if they're afraid that they could be turned upon. Well, maybe. The only reason I question that is because there seem to be these cases where they had so much evidence that any reasonable person would say they knew. And they still, they still wouldn't close the jaws on these people without just an incredible burden of proof. But I don't know. It's an interesting question. Well, part of what I've found interesting, too, is that they, here in the United States, you get arrested, and then there's this whole judicial process. There, at least on the espionage side, they would wait until they had everything. Once they had everything, it was over, and it all happened pretty fast. Um, one of the things that's always uh, occurred to me watching the show and just listening to the Russian as if it were just sort of music that's playing while I'm reading the English words, but that I imagine that different characters speak in different ways. I mean, Oleg, for example, he's a, not only a Moscovite, but his father is a high up communist. I mean, I, I imagine him speaking in a sort of equivalent of an upper class British accent. Um, is there that level of kind of different types of, of speech in the Russian, not in your role as a translator, but just as a person who actually listens to the Russian? 
Oh, absolutely. And um, I mean, uh, it's it's interesting you should mention Alec because he is uh, he's got the sort of the, the inflection down perfectly. He really sounds like a nomenclature kid. Yeah. Um, Does the actor also? Oh yeah, it does. I mean, I, I've never spoken Russian to the actor. Uh-huh. We, uh, Kostya and I correspond, but I've never actually talked to him. Uh-huh. And if we, t- uh, I've, the, the actors that I have talked to, we speak English to each other. We uh-huh. don't ever speak Russian, so I don't know uh, what their Russian is like. But, um, uh, but you know, uh, I assume as an emigre, he doesn't actually come from an nomenclatura family. But he's 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 really got it down, and it's a little contagious. Like it's, uh, <laughs> in season three, at some point, all the characters started getting all of the, the sort of slight nomenclatura inflection, which. <laughs> wasn't bad because of course you know all of them should aspire to it right, ah. right, right are there again as a person who listens to the russian i don't know if the actors i presume they all speak russian the ones who speak russian in the show like know how to do any of them speak as as if people who don't speak russian very well without naming names <laughs> Uh, sometimes that issue comes up. I mean, it's not, uh, the risk is not that they don't, they, they, they sound like, you know, foreigners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The risk is actually that language changes. And I, you know, I see that, uh, even, uh, well, I, you know that, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, having lived in this country for what, 30 years? More than 30 years. Right. But I'm, I'm watching my kids who both came as teenagers and their language is changing. And it's not that they're not Russian speakers. I mean, you can definitely, from the moment they start, they open their mouths, you can tell that they're native Russian speakers. But word order begins to change, inflection begins to change, mm-hmm. intonation begins to change. And uh, to the people, especially to people who use Russian in their uh, everyday lives, uh-huh. it sounds perfectly natural. It sounds like Russian, right? Why does and word order change? What is it conforming to? Um, Russian has flexible word order, but flexible but not meaningless. <laughs> so everything is conveyed with intonation. Uh, in, in English, you ch- the word order changes depending on whether you're making a statement or asking a question. In Russian, you can use the same word order for a question uh, and a statement, but you change the intonation. You can so use the say, same word order in a question and right, a statement. I am, exactly. Right, exactly. I am going home later. I'm going home later? Exactly. <laughs> Uh, so that's something that changes naturally because Russian allows you to start changing word order. Right. Uh, so when you're speaking English a lot, uh, you start you, uh, tra- transposing the English construction. It's not wrong. It just makes you sound like an immigrant. Yeah. You know. And um, uh, another thing that that happens is in Russian, uh, th- there's a very subtle thing, and native speakers never think about it, that the most important word uh, is placed at the end of the sentence. Right. So it was a dark night. Uh, when you're emphasizing the fact that that it was night, not that it was dark, <laughs> or it was night dark, when you really want to say that it was, you know, there's like no moonlight and no nothing, uh, and that's something that just goes within a uh-huh. year of moving out of the country, unless you're thinking about it actively, it goes. Even if you're an adult, would you start to lose Absolutely. That? Oh yeah, yeah. That's yeah. fascinating. Huh. And now this is also set in ninety in the 1980s, in the early 1980s. Um, you know, the Soviet Union is. Uh, so is there also a a dated kind of Russian? I mean, has Russian changed since the fall of, I was going to say the fall of communism, but that will make you make another face at me, so. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, it, that's, I try to uh, to make sure that, the, uh, that the, the language they use at least could have been used in the 80s. 
Uh-huh. And it's a, we also have a consultant in Russia who uh, who's a great editor uh, and so who goes over the translations and makes suggestions. But one of the things that he and I uh, differ on is he... Um, uh, he, he's, he uses a lot more contemporary slang. Uh-huh. And of course, it's so subjective. Yes, you yes. know, I come from one kind of family, he comes from another kind of family, we're roughly, roughly the same age. He sounds to me, when he first started um, uh, making comments on, on the translations, I assume that he was about 20 years younger because he's so much more slangy. Uh-huh. Um, so who, which one of us is having memory aberrations? <laughs> you know, it seems, to me, it seems to me that, you know, when I was uh, 15, people didn't use this kind of slang. Uh-huh. Well, maybe they did in his part of right, Moscow right, right. or, you know, at his school. It's you know, really it's tricky. So, it's so interesting because in Joel's probably about to say the same thing I am, that we're constantly trying to remember what English slang was when we were teenagers, yeah, yeah, yeah. and we don't remember. We, we and actually, we remember differently. We have something called Google Ngram. We look up phrases to see how popular they were in the mm-hmm. 80s. At the beginning of the season, we asked a lot of the writer's assistants in the office to go back and start watching 80s sitcoms and 80s drama shows because that actually gives a sense of what some of that phraseology was and some of the cadence and sound. But I'm so interested, Masha, in in your thoughtfulness about word order, construction, and, and how it lays out. But also, it leads me to ask you, given all of the thought on that, do you approach the work once with that in mind and once intuitively, creatively, is it all intuitive, creative, because you've got all that in your arsenal? How does it, how does it work in terms of process for you? Um, so what I found works is that when I get the script, I, I will read the Russian scenes and then set it aside. And then like, if I do it in the morning the, that night or the following day, I will actually go and, and, and translate. Mm-hmm. And I find that it percolates and sort of the, the meaning of the sentences has settled and they've transformed themselves into idiomatic Russian. Um, I mean, I think that's that's a lot of the way writing works. That in that mm-hmm. sense, it's you know, it's not uh, it's not that different. You sort of you start having a thought, you you walk around somewhere in the back of your head, it's percolating, and it's settled into language form. Uh, and then, if I'm unsure how something should be translated, then I think about you know uh, what's important here. Why you know why am I not sort of quite getting what it should sound like? And sometimes I just don't get it. Like uh, sometimes I will translate. I know it makes sense. I know it's correct. It doesn't sound quite quite right. And that's where, for example, our our, our Moscow uh, editor comes in. You know, it's just great to have an editor. And and yeah. again, that's like with any kind of translation, any kind of writing. Yeah, yeah right. It's just like writing from scratch. Yeah. It's the same. It's so interesting. Yeah. Um, so, Masha, someone who came to this country or grew up speaking Russian and learned English, and, and at this point are completely fluent, what problems would Elizabeth and Philip have faced? What would be the most difficult challenges in speaking perfect English? I actually think it's probably not language, although I mean, there's uh, Russians who live here uh, talk about articles as something random that Americans basically force on them to uh, <laughs> to, to make them give themselves away. And, um, but obviously, you know, we assume. Uh, I mean, that's sort of a suspension of disbelief trick mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. we assume that they actually speak perfect English. So, I think where they would give themselves away is not in verbal stuff, but um, you know, they're like physical tics. Uh, for example, when Americans count uh, with their fingers, 
they fold them out. <laughs> when Russians count with their fingers, they fold them in. <laughs> uh, and and it's, it's, it's a dead giveaway. I mean, I, uh, I've asked people on many occasions to, to count with their fingers. And, uh, and you can tell uh, whether they grew up in a Russian family or not. <laughs> <laughs> so how, how does good translation enhance the, the show at its best? That's a great question. I mean, I I don't know that it does. I think it may it may be a moment of sort of pure art. Um, there's um, I don't know if the if the show would really suffer if these people just spoke gibberish and the, sub- <laughs> and, the sub- and the subtitles said that they said what they said um, for probably the vast majority of the audience uh, that would work just fine. Um, there's something beautiful about authenticity. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, I want to say two things. One, one of the reasons we've gone to a great deal of trouble, and there's something a lot of shows haven't done, to hire Russian speakers as actors is because we want to be as authentic as possible, and we're careful about this in a lot of areas of the show. But the other thing is, we're very mindful of our Russian-speaking audience, including people who watch in Russia. And so Mm -hmm. it may be for the audience in America, it's not important, but for the audience there, it's everything. I also think there's a process question for all of us, which is, even if we were to find out that a big scam had been pulled on us, and these were not Russian speakers, and it was a big practical joke, and it was all gibberish. It's not gibberish, is it? (laughs) I'm not telling. (laughs) Our collective obsession with authenticity grows out of a desire for the emotional truths of the characters to be authentic. And so Joe and I obsess over what was on television that night in 1983. And I think whether or not we're right about any of the specifics of it, it infuses a spirit in everybody of trying to achieve authenticity. And if if all goes well, it just makes the show and the characters feel more real. So to me, it's not necessarily the specifics of any particular word or any particular translation. It's a whole spirit of trying to be authentic that you hope seeps through. Um, so I've got this really long quotation, but it was so amazingly astute and has just kind of four years later is still as relevant. So I just want to want to read it back. But it was kind of about you, you were really talking about how you were impressed with the psychology of the Soviet characters. And you said of Philip and Elizabeth, not only are there two spies stuck in an arranged marriage, each of them wishes and fears might become real. They are two Russians stuck in an American marriage. Each of them wishes and fears might become real. When Elizabeth asks Philip whether he had sex with an old lover, Irina, Philip lies, not just because he is a spy trained always to lie, especially about sex, but also because he is a Russian married man, which also means he is trained to lie, especially about sex. If the Western sexual revolution brought sex out into the public sphere, the silent Russian sexual revolution simply severed the automatic connection between sex and relationships and especially marriages, but no one ever talked about it. So there's like so much that's so dense, so much stuff there. But I just kind of want you to talk about how you see the psych, how these guys who claim not to speak Russian have so astutely captured. I remember being absolutely blown away by this when when I watched season one. Um, The uh, you know I'd never seen uh, American writers or TV. Writers or or filmmakers catch that difference in 
uh, uh, sort of concepts of morality and approaches to sexuality between Soviet people from that era and, and Americans from that era, or I think now. Um, and you know, it's it's Philip uh, and Elizabeth's relationship, and it's also Nina, mm -hmm. uh, who is such an amazing character, yeah. uh, and who's so articulate about her views on on what's right and what's wrong, and 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 that those views evolve over over the four seasons, and uh, and I think remarkable ways. And and I mean, I she's so believable to me as a Soviet woman. Uh, I, how'd you do that? Well, it's <laughs> interesting. I, I don't know how this exactly tracks with the through line you're, you're talking about or not, but I think it was very interesting to us from the outside to, to think about the fact that a lot of the you know early socialist and, and ideology that grew into communist ideology had a very clear and, and direct and written set of ideas about sexual ideology which was open, which was that the uh, kind of uh, royalist and imperialist uh, monarchies and whatnot that needed to be overthrown were sexually repressive. And so the sort of ideas that uh, communism were built on actually included inside of them the ideas of a sexual liberation. And so that was built into and part and parcel of a communist revolution in the Soviet Union, even if it wasn't necessarily the first thing that was talked about, it was really baked into it. Mm -hmm. And how that kind of intersected with a society that was then trying to liberate and that was simultaneously becoming repressive at the same time was simply a complex phenomenon and seemed to create people, you know, where you could, you could have social mores that were at once completely paternalistic and at the same time preaching that women were complete equals. And you got all these oxymorons. You got, for example, a, a huge number of you know female doctors, mm -hmm. but at the same time, no women in the Politburo. Some of that is very familiar to America, you know, yeah, yeah. but it's coming from almost completely different roots. You know, you had a society where, you know, the primary form of birth control was abortion, you know, and, and, and you, you just, I think we just took all these different pieces and tried to uh, imagine these characters that were coming from that background and then were trained. They had one layer on top of it that nobody else would have in that society, which is they were being trained by an espionage service. And this is historical. They were being trained by an espionage service that because of that ideology was willing to do something that no other espionage service, I don't believe anywhere in the, else in the world did, which was say, use your sexuality as part of your work, right? If the CIA did that, they would be sued. But the KGB, with that sort of almost, you know, libertine part of their ideology, told their officers, you can sleep with people to get secrets. And I think a lot, when you put that whole stew together, we got Philip and Elizabeth, even without any awareness of what you're talking about, about the a Soviet sexual revolution, which I don't, I don't think we knew about. I, I didn't hear about that before now. Yeah. Uh, a last question, Masha. Um, one of the things that, as a 21st century person, when I watch the show and I see Philip and Elizabeth, it seems to me having a sincere belief in communism, I guess. We don't really know. But they seem to have a sincere belief in whatever ideology it is that they kind of that sent them over here. And I guess n looking back now or from our point of view now, it's we don't really see people as having been sincerely ideological. It always seems like they always knew it was always corrupt. They always knew. Um, do you kind of buy the sincere 
place that Philip and Elizabeth seem to be coming from? That's a great question. Um, I mean, I, I'm actually, uh, for this book that I'm writing now, I've looked at a lot of sociology and psychology on 1980s Soviet Union. Mm. And it's true that there is very little to support the idea that uh, that there was a lot of strong ideology. In fact, the ideology seemed to have sort of fizzled out. It had given way to, to habit and a kind of attitude towards state and, and individuality that was very different uh, from the West. But that wasn't uh, the, sort of the core ideology it had hollowed out by, by the 80s. Um, at the same time, uh, you look at, for example, the work of Svetlana Alexievich, the Nobel laureate, and she and I actually talked about this, and she, in her work, uh, trying to document sort of the post-Soviet trauma, found that the trauma happened in the void left by the ideology. Right? So both of these things are true. And I, I, yeah, I find those characters who find themselves in this very unusual position um, that they have to keep justifying to themselves. And uh, you know, with every passing season, it gets more difficult for them to justify the things that they're doing to themselves and to their children. Um, and they need something really strong, a strong belief system, even if they're in a way creating it uh, in, in, in a void. So yeah, I think, I think they're perfectly believable. That's it for this week. Thanks again to Joel Fields, Joe Weisberg, and Masha Gessen. Come back next week to hear us talk about episode 407, Travel Agents, when our special guest will be Alison Wright, also known as Martha Hansen Westerfield. Thanks again for listening. I'm June Thomas. Our producer is Henry Milowski. This show is part of the Panoply Network.